Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning, and I'm glad that you were here and together with us as we worship the Lord. We continue in our worship today as we open up God's Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, if you would, turn there. Preserve our time together. I'd like to um, let us read this last section that's under our consideration. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10. We're going to pick up right there. I'll be in New American Standard. You can find that around you or just read and follow along in the copy that you normally read and follow, and you'll be blessed with understanding as we read both of these together. Verse 10 says, For this reason I'm writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brethren, verse 11, Rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Verse 13, all the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's a momentous day for me after teaching through 1 Corinthians beginning in August of 2014, completing that study in December of 2017, more than three years, 116 messages and then after a few breaks, picked up our study of 2 Corinthians in February of 2018. And after more than four years and 145 messages, we're going to come to the close of this Bible study. And as you know, we have spent the last several months on a portion of this letter we titled Marks of Ministry, Paul's Example. And we've been able to see and glean from Paul's comments to the church some wonderful examples of what ministry is supposed to look like and the priorities for those who minister and, they, what, and that, that they should have. And, the, and this last time we are together was no exception. We were able to see several comments uh, that continue this valuable lesson in priorities and faithfulness. If you would, look at verse 8 in your copy of God's Word. Paul says, For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. And we saw that he says that word truth twice. It is the word that throughout the New Testament is used to refer to the revelation of God that Jesus brings or perhaps to Jesus himself for what he actually is as the revelation of God for Paul. It certainly would include the entire revelation of God for him. And this statement just, uh, just elaborates the previous verse that we saw last time, where he shows his true desire is for the church to do what's right, regardless of how he is viewed. And here he just affirms that his conduct will remain guided by what the Scriptures say. And that was our next mark of a faithful ministry. We saw his attitude is very clear. The, the faithful minister isn't going to chase unbiblical means to try to manipulate those under his care. He's not going to do anything against the truth, only for the truth. So Paul says no matter what they may think or what they want changed, he's not going to violate his conscience concerning his understanding of the revealed Word of God. That's what he's going to give to them. And in that same vein, of course, if you think about that, if those in the church that Paul is addressing have come around to repentance, which is the reason for this last section, and they've begun to walk in the truth, he won't have to do anything at all. He won't have to buck their preferences on his approach to ministry. He won't need to bring discipline and discomfort to the church because if they're walking in the truth, he won't have to do anything against that because they're walking as they should. And he's not on a power trip. If they've changed their behavior, he's all for that. Now look at verse 9. And we saw in verse 9, it's also connected to verse 7. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. And Paul had learned, and this is this wonderful heart of Paul, he didn't care what, if they didn't think he was approved, he doesn't care if they think he's weak. Paul had learned that in weakness he became strong, 
We spent a lot of time looking at that in chapter 12. He learned that when he set his pride aside and became humble and accepted weakness and, that he had, and had disdain for his human abilities, that he became an instrument of great power in the hands of God. That's always the way it is, beloved. Whenever you want to be used by God, it has to be him working through you, not because you bring a lot to the table. He became an instrument of great power in the hands of God. He knew he didn't need to gain some strength. He didn't need some human reputation. He didn't need people to think that he was really something. So when he says, he's happy to say, we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you're strong. I'm happy, he says, to appear to be weak to the false teachers, to the, to the deceived members, as long as the rest of you are strong and walk in the type of strength that the Lord can use. And even though that was a kind of a repeat mark of faithful ministry, we saw again from that comment that the faithful minister is always committed to the building up of the church, regardless of how he appears to them or anyone else. And then we saw another part of Paul's commitment to prayer time. He says this at the last part of verse 9. says, We rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you're strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. So Paul's praying for the church here, and we get to see the topic, and so then, by default, it becomes a model for prayer for us. And Paul prays that the church at Corinth will be complete. And that is an important word we saw last time. It's to make someone completely adequate, sufficient for something, to furnish completely. We saw it's to cause to be fully qualified, adequacy. We saw the word used in Scripture to be translated restored. We saw it used as mended, which fit very well in this context of an unhealthy church of Corinth. This, uh, this was a need that Paul saw for the church in general, not just for the church in Corinth. And what we didn't have time to look at last time, we saw uh, in Colossae, he's, he, uh, he wrote to the Colossians, in Colossians 1.28, he said, We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man, here's our word, complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. Paul worked hard in the church to see this result. He admonishes and he teaches, and it's really the summary of his ministry, if you will. Again, a little later in Colossians 4, verse 12, he's talking about Epaphras. You remember him. We've looked at Epaphras before, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayer. So Epaphras is also praying for the church. What's he pray? that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. So what's he praying for? He's praying for the same kinds of things that Paul was praying for. He's praying for completeness. He's praying for the equipping with confidence in what the will of God is for you. And in the end, that's what we desire, is it not? That's an important concept and one which will represent an earnest desire of every pastor, that people be complete. And we're going to see it again in a moment in today's verses. But in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, we see it again. He says, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ, here it is, our word, it formed in you. And this is in the aorist, a certain point, passive. The work is being done in the case by the Holy Spirit through sanctification. And, and subjunctive, there's, there's some contingency. Paul says, I'm laboring until Christ is formed in you. There's some question about the, whether that will happen and whether they'll listen to his laboring. And so... This is where, this is, the word here is used, it's similar to our word, uh, morphe, morphe they, it's, it's where we get our word metamorphosis. Paul says, I'm laboring again till Christ is formed. He wants the church, he's praying and laboring, that the church will take on a certain form, a certain nature, that of Christ. So that's the same idea then we see all the way through as Paul ministers to the churches. He wants to see that completeness visible in their walk with the Lord. We can see that same earnest desire in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 
He says, as, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may, this is our word, complete what's lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father Himself and Jesus Christ, our Lord, direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. So whatever's out of location, whatever's broken, whatever's disconnected, very common prayer for Paul, this will be put back together. We pray most earnestly for you that we get to see you. And what do we pray for? That the Lord will perfect or complete what's in you, cause you to increase and abound in love for each other and for all people and establish your hearts without blame and holiness. That's what he's praying for. That's completeness in the Thessalonian church. Very common prayer for Paul. Always on his mind, always on the mind of Epaphras. It's always on the mind of every faithful minister. Completeness of the church. It's going to be different in every place. What needs to be done will be different here than it'll be somewhere else. But that faithfulness to pray for completeness is all through the scriptures. Second Corinthians 13:10. For this reason, I'm writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity, in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. And we saw that first part last time. For this reason, I'm writing these things while present. A while absent, rather. These things stands for the complete body of 2 Corinthians from 1.1 to 13.14. We saw that last time. And in 12.19, Paul said that all things, in other words, the letter in its totality, are intended to build up the church. So he wants to see the church dealing with sin in their life. He wants to see them understand the need for discipline and for authority. He wants them to be genuine and authentic. He wants them to be obedient. He wants them to develop real integrity. He wants to see them mature with the marks of a healthy church. He wants to see them increase in love that we saw in 1 Thessalonians, right? We saw that he wants them to stand perfect. We saw in Colossians. He admonishes and teaches so they can be complete in Christ. And he labors and strives according to the power which mightily works in him. It's over and over. He's always about that. It kind of sums up his ministry. And then the second part of the verse, in verse 10, look there if you would. For this reason I'm writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Obviously, he's coming. He's indicated this reality several times in the letter. I'm having this conversation with you, he said, while absent, so that when I'm present, so that when I'm actually there with you, I need not use severity. That's the word potamos. It's, it's, it, it talks about the sword's ability to cut. It isn't the sword itself, but the cutting ability of a sword. So Paul says, and this is likely a stern warning as he comes, to those who continue in unrepentant sin, they should expect to be cut off or excommunicated. That's the same word we found twice as we looked at Romans chapter 11, verse 22. As it talks about the Lord and it talks about the Jewish people and their disobedience and disrespect and, and uh, not following what the Lord said were cut off temporarily and we were grafted in. It says, behold then the kindness, and here's our word, severity of the Lord to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise, then it uses the actual word for cutting, you will be cut off. So Paul says to the church, I'm writing these things while I'm absent in order that when I'm present, I don't have to use severity. I really don't to come in there and have to take out a sword. And if you remember 1 Corinthians 5, 7, we have a similar word there, so it's not unusual for the church to hear this. Paul says this to them as he's dealing with 
the open sin that's in the congregation that they should have dealt with on their own. He says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. Excatherio is the word clean out. And we know that word from our English word. Uh, it gives us our English word to catharize, but it's to clear away dead branches. It's to clear away suckers. It's to clear away bad ingredients. And these are words the church is familiar with. They're ones that we've talked about earlier when we went over biblical, that biblical process of what it means to clean out. That's to put out of the church those who continue in unrepentant sin because they create this atmosphere in the church that's not healthy for the church. And they, we do that after they've been approached by one and then by several people, and then the corporate body, and they've refused to repent and turn away from the path they're on, then they are cleaned out, if you will. And so Paul says in verse 10, he uses the same word, look at the end of verse 10, he says, for this reason, I am writing these things while present, while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which God, what the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. So I'm really writing these things now so that you can get things in order so when I get there, I don't have to use severity, and so I don't have to make some cuts, and I don't want to put people out, and that's in accordance with the authority, he says, which the Lord gave me for building up. So even in making some cuts, the tearing down, that's the word, uh, that it's similar to what we saw in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, ex cathario, it's actually the word catharesis, Paul says, I don't want to have to do that. And so we've seen Paul accepts that not all the Corinthians may take this to heart, he may come, and they didn't listen. No doubt, and he hasn't forgotten the difficult time he had on his second visit. And though he is determined that that experience not be repeated, experience in the church tells him it just might come to that. And we can see, beloved, from his actions and from his language as he signs off, he really reminds them in the event that he comes and finds them adamantly rebellious, he's not going to cower. And back in chapter 10, he indicated to them that he's not wrong to brandish that authority to do what's needed, but he does it, mark it, in a spirit of sadness. It's never a joy to have to do it. But better a letter than face-to-face -face reproof. Better to be rebuked in the letter so that in my third visit, it can be different than the second visit. I think you can kind of sense that from the Apostle Paul. Now, we're going to transition to his farewell. And it may be interesting to think on, on the fact that um, those of the church who were really redeemed are in Christ's presence now, obviously. So those who had passed the test, those who were in that congregation when Paul was dealing with this difficult time, are now in glory and have been in glory for a long time. And they surely appreciate even more thoroughly, as I was thinking in my office this week, in light of the composition of the New Testament, the incredible privilege they had of anticipating meeting and seeing and hearing the Apostle Paul, 75% of the New Testament, penned by Paul. Because even though they didn't appreciate him then or give him the respect and the deference he really deserved, uh, the Lord certainly honored him in the letters the church has studied since the apostolic era, right? So obviously they, and, and that's how it always is in a church full of discord, that it always affects how everybody thinks about what the preacher's doing. And so they didn't appreciate him like they should have. No doubt they passed the test, but were influenced, which is why you have to cut those things away. But obviously since around AD 67, no one has been able to have that privilege that they had because Paul was killed. 
and Paul coming and checking the health of the church. And I was also thinking, I wonder how we would react if we had the chance to hear him personally. If Paul came and stayed a couple of weeks with Berean and then came up and spoke and just gave us the word of the Lord to us. But even though we don't get to hear and see him personally, we still get to measure our reaction, don't we? Because we have his guidelines, which is why we study the word of God the way that we do. So the Holy Spirit has made sure that churches today are in no way disadvantaged. So you can imagine, knowing the nature of your own heart response to these two letters, what your response may have been if Paul comes, because it works exactly the same way. And if you think about Paul, there may have been a reply from Corinth confirming what he wrote, taken to heart that people would welcome the apostle, but we can't assume that any more than today's pastors can assume that the receipt of a verse-by-verse message is well-received with their congregations. You don't have any of that guarantee. You give the message out, you don't know how the response is going to be. And so it follows that Paul and his friends may well have ventured from Macedonia not knowing what sort of reception would be given them. Would the collection be ready? Because that was really the essence of the reason for the first visit, right? Is to collect and tell them that they needed a collection. He was going to come and collect it. Uh, Would the church have undertaken disciplinary measures and taken care of itself and kicked out the false apostles and and those who remained in disobedience? We know that the event went well because we can see it in Acts. We know that he took up the collection and went on from there. So we understand that they received him, but as he was traveling, it's very likely He continued to send up a lot of prayers on that distance between Macedonia and Achaia, and an anxious prayer for every mile, I think. And so it's the same today as we really pull this last example for for us from this letter, and we pull it by inference. It's kind of a nod to inductive Bible study. There are times when the minister has to act in good faith, doing what he can for the Lord and for his people, and just leave the consequences we got. You don't know how that's going to work out, and so... In other words, you're motivated by the path of examples and the clear teaching of the Word of God rather than the certainty of apparent success or somebody saying it was well-received. That, most times, is the only way you can go forward. Faithfully teach the Word as clearly as possible over and over again because that's the example that we have. And do it in the way that you see the New Testament tell you to do it. And then you just leave that consequence with God. And like the Apostle, we need to be sure... We're unable to act against the truth, but only for the truth. And if that's the case, then the church should, as Paul cautioned some in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. As Paul talked about those he ministered with, he told the church, Be careful that you don't automatically judge what's going on here. You can't see everything. Now he looks at verse 11. Look there if you would. Finally, brethren, he says, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And finally, of course, signifies that which remains. It doesn't always indicate the completion of a letter. Sometimes it just is the completion of a thought. And we see that certainly in 1 Corinthians 1.16, where he writes, beyond that, that's what we give you. I don't know whether I baptized any other in addition to Stephanus and his house. So 
Sometimes Paul just gets to the end of a subject and he says finally and then moves on to a new one. Here it's actually completing and it's the conclusion of this letter. And then he says brethren, which is just a really great way to address the church. That's his corporate family, his brothers and sisters. Whatever some have done uh, they, and may still be doing if they are redeemed and pass the test, they're part of the family of Christ. And so no matter what happens in the back seat during the vacation, you're still your brothers and sisters when you get there. And so as Romans 12, 2, we saw a couple weeks ago, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. No matter what happens, it's a family relationship. And so he reminds them of that. And then he says, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. Five things he gives them, even as he comes, and, and uh, he's going to see them shortly, he's still insisting on what's most important. And it's easy to just kind of nod at those things and say, okay, we'll do that, Paul. But I think we still need to learn as a church, and Paul makes sure that we do, uh, what we need to focus on. Uh, but before we get to those, those commands, can we point out what isn't on the list? The, the non-starters, the did-not-runs, if you will. Be prosperous. Didn't make it. Be successful. Be wealthy. Be healthy. Be comfortable. Be recognized. Be honored. Speak to your best life now. Dominate the evil one and throw him out. He doesn't say any of those things, does he? Those didn't make the list. But unfortunately, if false teachers wrote books, those kinds of things would get in and the people would get caught up in it. Wait a minute. They do write books. And that's precisely what happens in the church. We get caught up in all these things. Paul mentions none of them. See? They don't find any place in Paul's list. These are priorities for the church. They're most are present active imperative, some are present passive, so the work's done by someone else, but all of them are imperative. So what's that mean, beloved? When we talk about something that's the imperative, if you read something in an imperative, is it optional for you to do it? And if you're not doing something in the imperative, what are you in? Sin. Let's just be clear about that, okay? Because I think we've soft pad this a lot. We look at it and we say, you know, we see that Paul says, you know, Rejoice. Okay, well, rejoice if you'd like to, and if you feel like it, and if things are going well, rejoice. No, it's in the imperative. Present active imperative. And so, that's the first one. And it has to do with thriving. It's really a command to thrive, which is based on a hope that doesn't fade away. Thrive in whatever situation you're in. And understanding that all things are for our good, mark it, and God's glory both now and in eternity. And beloved, you need to teach your children that. The world is a tough place to live, and there's a lot of suffering, and you've got to teach your children to suffer well. They need to know that everything that happens to them is for their good and God's glory for all eternity. That is a blanket statement that applies to every single thing that happens to a Christian. For their good and God's glory for all eternity. It's for you too, beloved, and for me. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, rejoice always. What's the rest of it? Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. All in the imperative. What's the rest of it? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So is it optional? I don't think so. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. And in case you didn't get it, I'll say it again. Rejoice. Always. It's part of the most important things the church has to put on. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. Afflictions, sufferings, in my flesh, that doesn't sound that great, but what's he, how's he start the sentence? 
I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Whatever I had to go through, he says, to the church in Colossae, I rejoice in that. Was it pleasant for him? I, I think we understand that it wasn't. We've looked quite a bit at Paul's travels and what it probably looked like for him. Dozens of times in the New Testament, rejoicing is modeled or commanded in difficult times. It's a joy that's not dependent on circumstances. It's an imperative for all the church for all time. Rejoice. You're not a victim of your circumstances. You're to rejoice in whatever it is because they are for your good and for God's glory for all eternity and for now. Be made complete. There it is again. Paul, we see Paul praying for that all over the place. We see it again brought back here. Cartartizo. And in the imperative, present passive imperative, be restored, be mended, be complete in the sense that things that are out of sync or out of order need to be appropriately placed where they're supposed to go. Because we saw it could be used of wholeness, of soundness. This is part of the work of those who lead the church. It's the work of those who are part of the church. Make one another complete. Let the Holy Spirit make you complete through the Word of God. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You're at work to be complete. Paul prays the church will be complete. Every church is different. Every individual believer, depending on where their walk is in the Spirit, is going to have different needs. Those things need to be put in order. We're about that all the time. Paul indicated that same idea of the work that needed to be done early in 1 Corinthians. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, and that you be, here it is, made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And just in general, for the church, for every church, whatever's broken, whatever's out of sync, whatever's uh, out of place, out of harmony, needs to be brought to the appropriate place. And we're all to be working on that. So if there's horizontal relationships between you and another brother or sister in Christ, you're supposed to fix that. You don't let that just continue like that. And if there's places in your walk with the Lord that aren't where they need to be, you're working on that by the power of the Holy Spirit, using the Word of God to sanctify you, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, renewing your mind. This is all part of that work of completeness. Paul says it's in the imperative for the church. Everybody has room to move. 1 Thessalonians 4, what's it say? As you have been doing it, do so still more. See, there's always room to improve. When I do a little job for my dad when I was young, he goes, that's a pretty good job. Now, let's work on getting better. Let's do this this way next time. It's always that way. There's always room for headroom. Nobody's arrived. And then he says this. He says, be comforted. Again, present passive imperative. That's the Greek verb, from the Greek verb parakaleo. That's a word we understand. It's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit coming alongside and helping. It could mean comfort one another, certainly. Uh, in the passive, it, it's likely a reference to God of all comfort. A passage takes in both. I'd like you to hold your finger here, in matter of fact, and just turn back just as a reminder to 2 Corinthians 1.3. Will you do that? 2 Corinthians 1.3. And just think about this as we, as we um, think about this command this in, in the imperative to be comforted. Think about how Paul started this letter out. It's just, so, it's just so appropriate. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. 
So he gives God praise because he is, and the Lord Jesus Christ, because he's the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us, verse 4, in all our afflictions, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So in whatever the affliction is, whether it's self-administered, something you got in trouble with and now you're afflicted, we, are, we get comfort from the Lord. Whether it's something that was forced on you and you didn't have anything to do with it, we get comfort from the Lord. Whatever the affliction is, He's able to comfort us and then we are to learn because how we were comforted to do what? To comfort other people. Verse 5, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, and that's implied, right, that you are walking with the Lord, because if you are, then the sufferings of Christ are yours in abundance. If you don't have any sufferings of Christ, it's unlikely that you've been conformed to His image. So, it's, it's, uh, it's a given. The sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So, Christ continues to fill in the places where we are depleted. Verse 6, but if we are afflicted, now Paul talks about himself, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. So Paul says, when you see what's happening to me, it's easier for it to happen to you. And if you are, if you are patiently enduring those same sufferings and being comforted by the Lord, then you're right where the Lord wants you. So you're not a victim of your circumstances, are you? Your identity is not victimhood. Your identity is in whatever way that you've afflicted, the Lord has provided comfort for you. You're to learn that comfort, not stay in your affliction, not stay in your victimhood, and move forward and comfort other people. See, So that's the issue. And it's commanded to the church. It's one of the main things Paul, as he signs off, says, this is imperative for the church, to be comforted. Comfort one another. Be comforted by the Lord. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, verse 7, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. So this is for the church for all time. No matter how hard things are, no matter how difficult the way looks, Christ understands, and he's ready to comfort if we'll submit in obedience to this imperative, and then we can provide comfort to others, and the church provides then the needs for the needs that it has. This is just a marvelous way for the church to be fulfilled. People are in difficult times. They've had difficult times. They may be some ahead. And the church provides comfort as Christ provides comfort. And then, it says, then he says this. Be like-minded. It's from the Greek verb for neo. It, we get a great illustration of, of this command from Romans 15, 5. He says this. Paul says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement, why would you need perseverance and encouragement? Because you're going to have difficult times, right? You're going to struggle. You're going to have affliction. You're going to have hardship. And God gives perseverance and encouragement, grants you to be of the same mind with one another. So in other words, sometimes your affliction comes from some annoying person that you have to bump into constantly in the church. People you wouldn't be friends with if you weren't believers. But the church is the most diverse group on the planet from every walk of life. And the Lord brings them all together and he says, be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Why? So that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in being of one accord, you can truly give praise to the Lord, and it appears to be praise and not argument. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 3.8, and it's an appropriate command for the church. With so many different opinions on everything. It's even worse now than it's ever been. 
competing points of view, leading to endless debates and endless arguments. And in some churches, that really defines the essence of the church, factions and divisions. And as I told first service, that was Berean 14 years ago. That defined Berean, factions and divisions. We had a Sunday school class, and all they did was argue with each other. It was just next to my office. I could hear them the whole time. And I just thought, how are the seeds of righteousness going to grow if they're not sown in peace? And we didn't have peace. So it's, it's not unusual for churches to struggle through that because there's all kinds of competing ideas. But a permanent imperative for the church is to dwell on what is common, a desire to think each other's thoughts and to understand one another. And that's just so opposite of what the world does right now, and that's made its way into the church. Instead of you know, avoiding the conflict that comes from everyone having a different opinion and voicing it, we get it in the church and we do it. And we're supposed to get in line with what the Word of God teaches. See, agree with one another, yes, but agree with each other because you all understand the truth of God, not the philosophies of the world. See, it's not superficial. Now, even if someone is in the philosophy of the world, it doesn't mean you're supposed to have an argument. We're supposed to let peace reign, and we're going to see that in a minute. But this is agreeing with one another is because you understand the truth of God. Because it's amazing to me how much worldly philosophy has made its way into Christians who should know better. For example, the climate disaster and global warming worry. They've forgotten that the Lord has made the world. And he said numerous times, it stands. And spring and summer and fall and winter will continue on. And he made the world for people. And said when he made it, cultivate it, submit, bring it under your submission, mine it, live here. And guess what? The world was never eternal to begin with. It had a time stamp on it. And when the time stamp expires, boy, if you think it's bad now, wait till the Lord gets through with it. But it's amazing to me how that philosophy has made its way into Christians. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And what? Fill the earth. It's not full. Everybody on the face of the earth could fit in the state of Texas. Everybody. But that philosophy makes its way in. This is exactly what I'm talking about. And this argument then just perpetuates. It's worldly philosophies made their way in the church so we can argue about them. And the Lord says, listen, be of one mind, but you have to be grown up. You have to know what the Word of God says. Be, be clear. The evil one is content with you buying any amount of that worldly philosophy. That's not what it's supposed to be. Agreement comes when you understand the Word of God. And then this next imperative goes perfectly with it. And there are lots of overlap. Live in peace. Present active imperative. Aaron Yuo. Primarily to bring to peace. Reconcile. Keep peace or be at peace. Mark 9.50, the Lord tells the disciples, be at peace with one another. They, they were arguing over who gets to be closest to the Lord when he's reigning on his throne. Be at peace with one another. Romans 12.18, we saw, if it's possible, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. As much as it depends on you, have to, don't have to argue about everything. You don't have to pick everything apart with other people. 1 Thessalonians 5.13, be at peace among yourselves. It's in the imperative. Church is supposed to be at peace. It's for the Corinthian church. It's for every church throughout all the ages. And beloved, gossip doesn't produce peace. 
slander, backbiting, doesn't have peace as a byproduct. Little letters don't have peace as a byproduct. Complaining doesn't produce peace, obviously. But here in, in context with these, two, these commands, the apostles indicate that the Corinthians are never to engage in word battles. That's the whole issue. And when doctrine and principles are not compromised, the idea is they ought to contemplate surrendering their views to the views of others. And interesting, Paul doesn't write, be at peace among yourselves here. So he doesn't say it that way. Because it appears he's more concerned about an inward disposition. Be settled in your own heart as you're gonna, as much as it depends on you, the idea in Romans, be at peace with all men. And that's going to produce the right fruit in the church. And for those who lead the church, beloved, this is a major time consumer. Making sure peace reigns in the church. And then he says this. He says, and the, love of, and, the, and the God of love and peace be with you. And so the reason Paul expresses it this way, it's to say to the church, and the implication is what? It's possible for the God of love and peace to be excluded from the church meetings. It's not automatic. And Paul, in essence, said the same thing to the Philippians in Philippians 4.9. He said, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You see? If, what they're, if, if they're practicing the things that they heard Paul preach, they learned from Paul and watched in his life, if you practice those things, the God of peace will be with you. See, it's contingent on something. It's the same idea here. To experience this blessing, the Corinthians have to take the initiative. Remember, sovereignty never cancels out responsibility. Any more than position cancels out practice. You're holy in position. But by practice, you have to be holy, right? Remember, Paul started this letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he starts the letter. That's what he so wants for the church. And then at the end of chapter 13, he tells them how those things can be the case. He wants grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. And many Christians and churches miss this because they don't live out under the commands. I mean, if you're constantly at war with one another, if you're divisive, if you're having trouble with each other, how is it possible for the God of peace and grace to be in the midst? It's not. This is just basics of Christian experience, beloved. It's what the church should look like. It's what the leaders labor for. But apparently, as we said, from a fellowship perspective, it's not automatic. And I want you to remember, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, and I just want to touch on it again because it's, it's a perfect illustration of exactly what we're talking about, this contingency about whether or not the Lord's going to rule in His love and peace in the church. And remember that these seven churches in Revelation are in the church age for the church all time, and so we see samplings of that constantly in the church. So the things that are said there still apply until we're at the end of the church age. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, we see this, to the angel of the church of Laodicea, and the angel just means messenger, it's the person who's the elder over the church at Laodicea, is getting something written. The amen, the faithful true witness, and the beginning of creation of God says this. Who, who's talking? That's Jesus. 
It's the long title for Jesus saying something to the church. And we saw before, he has the right to because he is the head of all things, the church. Verse 15, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Verse 16, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Now, that's not a really great start for the church. So he's got their attention, I hope. Because you say I am rich and I've become wealthy and I've need of nothing. So in other words, they are pretty well off church. They've got what they need. And as we talked about before, as we talked about finances, you know, when you're wealthy, it's hard to realize that you're in any danger because you think the wealth is part of God's blessing for you. And secondly, you think you've insulated yourself from catastrophe. So it's hard to get the attention sometimes of people who are wealthy. You say you're rich, you say, and have become wealthy, and you have need of nothing but you don't know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So he just cuts right to the chase. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. And we looked at those illustrations and why they're important for later to see. We won't talk about that yet. Just that the Lord is saying what's the actual case. You can't say you're naked and you're not rich. So now he's got them where he needs them. Then he says this in verse 19. He says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. What was that that he just did? Reproof and discipline. He told them the truth about the church and said that has to change. Uh, repent. Be zealous. That's always the case for the church, right? Anytime we see in our personal quiet time where we're reading the Bible and we see something we're not doing, we repent, don't we? And we say, Lord, I want to do this better. And then we begin to meditate on those things and, and change our behavior and what we're allowing in our life. So we understand that. And we looked at it extensively even not that long ago. Now mark this illustration. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And beloved, that has nothing to do with salvation, although it's been errantly used as a salvation invitation. And it has everything to do with the environment of the church. This is a church that said they worship Jesus, but he says, mark this, he's not in the building, but he'd like to be. That's the whole point. I'm standing at the door of the church and I'm knocking. I'm not currently inside because you're doing your own thing. But to the extent, then, that the church pursues spiritual wholeness as the church expresses joy and submission and truth and unity, the powerful presence of God is going to be obvious. We desire to walk that way when we, when we are zealous and repent and we turn from where we are. That's when the Lord wants to and can be in the midst guiding. Otherwise, it's just a building full of wealthy, need-of-nothing Christians. So it's conditional. The Lord says to Paul, that's what he wants in the church. You're going to have to do some things for that to be the case. Now let's close out. 2 Corinthians 13, 12, if you would. Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. What's a holy kiss? 
Well, if all the thing singles are thinking, you know, I need to place myself in the right area if we're going to start with this now, that'll be disappointing because that's not what it's talking about. It's a very common ancient East greeting to one another with a kiss. Holy kiss just means separate or set apart, uh, set apart from other types of kissing. And that kind of kiss typically occurred was a man-to-man, woman-to-woman embrace, cheek-to-cheek. You see that even today in some cultures in the world, although it's not as common as it used to be in the West. We have friends that still do that. It's funny to put that, uh, a number of times I was on mission trips and we were on a bus and somebody would write that on the main bulletin board in the front, greet one another with a holy kiss. It was like, yeah, that's how we want to start. But that's not how it, it has a lot to do with this hum, humility of approach to one another. It was a way to demonstrate affection to someone. It was a way to endear oneself. Mark it, beloved. It's a way that really transcends pettiness. It's really difficult to embrace someone in that way and still be petty. It has a lot, it's very similar to foot washing. So the Lord said we're to practice. When you wash somebody's feet, you really get rid of pettiness, don't you? That was what the Lord has intended through this comment from Paul. We all know the power of touch. We know the power of an embrace. Great humility there to show brotherly love because that's what we're supposed to be sharing at every level. You know from our study in the New Testament that the world is supposed to know that we're Christians by our what? Love. In fact, John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus is recorded as saying, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. It's a new commandment. I want to make sure you understand it. Love them like I loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And beloved, we show that love, and just because you know, the apostle says, greet one another with a holy kiss, he's intending for us to demonstrate a willingness to get close to one another. An understanding that we need to give up our lives for one another and meet each other's needs. To not close our compassion off to someone who's in need. Brotherly love is an action of affection given to someone through a ministry to them that meets the need that they have. The church isn't a consumer commodity. What do I like? What can I get? I don't like that. I do like this. It's not a restaurant that you come to if you want a burger and you go to a different restaurant if you want a steak. But churches have formed themselves up appealing to consumerism. And so Christians come in thinking that's how they're supposed to look at it. That is not how the church was established. It's not how the church is supposed to run. It's how can I give? How can I minister? Where can I serve? How can I be sacrificial? We love by meeting needs. The church is supposed to look like that. And as simple as that sounds, it is absent most of the time. We have to work on it. Every church does. We're so consumed with ourselves. We're so consumed with consumerism. We forget that it's supposed to look like that. And Paul says this, verse 13. He says, All the saints greet you. And as innocent as that sounds, and it is 
innocent, really. It, it also implies a degree of harmony amongst and unity and purpose among the other churches, probably those in Macedonia where Paul is. And in that case, it has a direct message. The question is, will the Corinthians be out of line in the question of the collection? Will they be out of step with priorities of the saints around the known world? You remember when Paul addressed the haughtiness of attitude in 1 Corinthians 14 and 36, they were disobeying Paul's commands, the services were out of control, everybody was trying to talk at the same time, they were misusing all the sign gifts and, and doing things to make themselves look spiritual, and women were teaching in the church service, and he, he tries to sort all of that out, and he comes to verse 36, and he says this to the church, he says, was it from you that the word of God first went forth? You want to say that to churches who've embraced unbiblical processes in, in, in their church and in their polity and in the way they deal with the public. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? What's the answer rhetorically? No. Or has it come to you only? What's the answer? No. They're just giving him a hard time. We want to do it this way. Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants. God can do whatever he wants in our midst. Whatever. Just doing all these things that disobey the word of God, disobey Paul's commands. Paul just put it into it. He goes, listen, it didn't come to you first. And it didn't come from you. And then he says, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's command. But if anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. He just has to put an end to all the all the different opinions. You're not the only church. Many understand the commands and do them. That's the idea. Maybe Paul says you need to come in line. So he says all the saints greet you. Paul started the letter in chapter 1 and verse 1 and he says, the church of God which is in Corinth together with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. So when he starts with the church, he reminds them, this is the church of God in Corinth, but there's lots of saints all around you, not just you. So when he says all the saints greet you, he brings this pressure on them now by reminding them that a lot of other believers are watching. Still the same for us. Now Hebrews tells us that, therefore, because you are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. I think about that pretty often. Maybe you do too. I think about all the men who stood in pulpits for all the ages since the beginning of the church and all that they've done, and I think I'm surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who guys who've labored through the, the, the Scriptures over and over again for long periods of time, and I, I don't want to fall short. In fact, I, actually, I think yikes to myself. When you want to be lazy and when you don't want to do the work that it takes and whatever, Therefore, since you're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, run the race to get the prize. Throw off all the weight that's on you. And we think about that as believers. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses all watching. And, and you know, we don't live in a country where we're persecuted. Uh, the, the church service today is not like the one that would be in Sudan. But that doesn't mean we need to be ashamed if we're doing the things the Lord has told us to do and we're not compromised. We're doing precisely what the Lord wants in our environment and giving out the gospel and being faithful with what we have. Then he's thoroughly pleased. And all those who are up there watching or cheering, you open your Bible and you read every day and then you start putting it to work in your life and you live your life because you know the Lord's going to call it into account and you're building on that foundation of Christ and it's, it's gold, silver, and costly stone and not wood, hay, and stubble. And, it, and everybody in that witness that's watching you is cheering. That's what they want you to do. No jealousy. 
No pettiness. See, this is, this is the issue. All the saints greet you. And they're all of one mind here. Come in line. That's what he's saying. And he closes by pronouncing this wonderful blessing on the church. That's where we're going we're gonna to close today. It says in verse 14, you can look there if you want. The last verse for our study in 2 Corinthians. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What a, what a great thing to be written on the church that that's true. Maybe marvelous. He speaks this blessing. He wants so much for the church to get everything in order, to rejoice, to be comforted, to be made complete, imperfection, mending, restoration, to be like-minded, to live in peace. And he wants those things so that they could have a blessing from heaven that would overwhelm their hearts. And that's just so, that's just so encouraging to me. And I want you to bow with me, and I want you to think about that as we pray how we can know that these blessings are ours. As we think about our own walk with the Lord, as we think about our ministry in the church and all of that, how do we know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit are with us? We see them in how we act giving grace to other people. The old saying that he who doesn't give grace wrecks the bridge he has to cross over. Grace of the Lord Jesus, who in his kindness and his mercy condescended to come and live as we live yet without sin and then gave up his life for us. The grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God which loves and gives even to his enemies and gave us Christ while we were still his enemies and causes the rain to fall on people who hate him. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who comes alongside and encourages and reproves and corrects and instructs that fellowship to be part of the church too. We see them in how we act and how we treat each other. And Lord, that's my prayer that we be able to rejoice in the blessing that is the grace of your Son and the love that you've given and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit regularly. We won't inhibit that and it'll in any way put up a roadblock or stumbling block for any of those things. And as we see these commands in the imperative, Father, help us to be about making these things true. The part that's our part to play, your Holy Spirit then has given us the ability to do it, and that's our part then to do this, this work Pray that you'll help us see these kinds of things. To rejoice, be comforted, be made complete. Not staying where we are. In perfection, mending, restoration, to be like-minded, to live in peace. Pray all these things very simply, Lord. Come to the end of this wonderful letter. To be a better church because of it. We pray this in the name of your Son Jesus, for His sake, and all God's people said.